Hey, glad to see you guys. If you are new, welcome. My name is Ryan and I'm your pastor. We are in the midst of a series coming toward the latter half of it now, uh, just talking about the state of the church. We've, we've gone through what the chapel is about. We've gone through the state of the global church. And today, as planned, so it syncs up with our calendar, we are talking about the topic of grace, the grace of Jesus, and race. Grace and race. This is a very um, pressing topic. Has anyone heard anything in the news in the last 12 months about racism or racial diversity, <laughs> racial awareness, racial recognition? Anyone heard that? Okay. If you have not, you likely have not been looking at any screen or been attached to a person who owns a screen because it's everywhere. Constantly, we are seeing issues of one race being pitted against another. And, uh, and I wanted to, to, to open up after I pray with, with a few um, examples from my life. And then we're going to jump into, we're going to be in a lot of scriptures today, so they're not on the board. But if you want the list of scriptures that I'm reading off today, just shoot me an email and grab one of my cards in the back of guest services, and I would be more than happy to send you all of the scripture we use today. So let's pray, and we're going to get into it. Father, I thank you for your goodness to us. I thank you that you sent Jesus to die, to shed his blood for us, to create the strongest bond that can be had, stronger than any race or ethnic division, that the bloodline in your son Jesus can bring us together in unity and strength above and beyond any other thing in this world. Lord, this is a sensitive topic. I pray, I pray in the name of Jesus that my words would not offend people, but if your word does, I pray that it would do so in a way that brings transformation and change so that we can be at the forefront of what it means to be your unified people. God, we love you. We give this all up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So my story starts um, as a young child. Those of you who don't know, or maybe you're newer to the chapel, I know you can't tell by my external appearance, but my father is a Filipino. And, and that's about as cute and as Asian as I ever looked. And then after that moment, my mom's German and French-Canadian genes, they just took over. They, they depleted my skin pigment because I was tanner at one point. And then I grew up like a weed. I'm literally the tallest Filipino that's around. Um, when, when I'm in my Filipino family reunion pictures, there's like all of these short brown people. And then I'm like the white guy happy in the back. Um, but, and people don't believe me. People are like, there's no way that you are actually Filipino. So I got a picture of me and my dad and my grandma, and my, uh, my beautiful wife. So, so literally, there's my proof. And when you see my dad and I next to each other, then you can kind of tell because basically he's like me if, he, if I were Tanner and, and squatted down to 5A and had muscles. And then when you see his next to other, it makes sense. Um, but, but that's just all to say that, that I grew up in a family that there were, where there was some unique race things and a, a unique mix that happened. My, uh, my parents split up when I was younger. My mom remarried. My middle brother is half black. And, and you can bet, um, unfortunately, and I've been really rethinking thinking about this this week, my brother and I come at each other so bad at family get-togethers because I'm Asian and he's black, and I don't know if it's right, I'm pretty sure it's wrong, but between the, just the two of us, we are so, I think, racist toward each other because we'll be at Thanksgiving dinner, he'll say something about math, I'll say something about sports, and then my mom's hitting both of us. Uh, and then my youngest brother... Um, his middle name is Kealo Hilani. My stepdad's name is Akakaina Kealoha. My family is a melting pot. And, and I, 
And I don't know about you, but when we talk about this issue of race, it's very personal for me. But when I became a follower of Jesus, I realized it's not just a personal issue. It's not just a social issue. This, this idea of race is not just that. It's a bloodline issue. It's about who we're connected to and where we draw our identity from. Now, I remember as, as vividly as I possibly could have any memories of when my mom married my, my brother Trent's father, who was black, and this was in the 80s. And, and it was still not, not quite accepted, even in the 80s. For, for those of you who don't know, um, up until, I want to make sure I get the year right, up until 1967, in 16 states, it was still against the law for blacks and whites to marry. The law in South Carolina wasn't repealed until 1998. You heard me correctly, 1998. And during that time, in 1998, they pulled the state, and 29% of the people did not like that they were bringing the law down. In 1998, 2000 was the last state to do so, it was Alabama. This is just to, to show that this is a very current thing that we need to discuss. This is not something that's in our past. This is not something that we can say, well, we did it then and we, we, we've moved on from that now. It's still very much alive and present. And unless you've lived it, it's hard to know. Now, I've got this weird thing going on because on one hand, I'm a half Filipino and I have a half black brother. But on the other hand, I look mostly white. Like there was the occasion in San Diego when I grew up there that people would speak Spanish to me and I'd be like, no, hablo, whatever you're saying. There'd be occasions where I'd be in Hawaii and the Hawaiian guys would come up to me and speak Hawaiian pigeon and I'd still once again say, no idea what you're saying. But for the most part, I, I look like an average white guy. But there were some very definitive moments for me when I was dating my first girlfriend that was serious in high school, going over to her house. And uh, after a period of months, her mom found out that I was from a mixed race family, she called it. And she told her daughter, my girlfriend at the time, you cannot date this boy. He's from a mixed race family, and that's not right. This was in 1996. 1996. And then, uh, if that weren't enough, I remember vividly, and I've shared this story once here before, my very first staff meeting at a church. I worked at a, my first church was a congregational church. It was mostly older white people wearing three-piece suits, and I was this beach bum youth pastor who didn't own shoes. And I was super excited to be at my very first church staff meeting. I thought, ah, that's it. I'm going to take over the world for Jesus. I'm going to bring all the best ideas to the table. And we sat around this table, me and um, a bunch of older people. And they started pitching their ideas, going over the bulletins. What are we going to do? What's the announcement? And at the time, Valentine's Day was coming up. And back then, we had the clip art instead of the pictures. And one of the clip arts for the Valentine's Day event that was on the draft board was of a, a black man and a white woman in love for the Valentine's Day celebration. And this was in the year 2000. So I'm sitting there, and they, uh, someone brings it up, and they say, well, is it okay to have an interracial couple representing our Valentine's Day celebration? Is that going to offend some people that go to this church? And nobody knew, because like I said, I, I, I don't look like I have a half-black brother. I don't look Filipino. And my boss at the time knew exactly what was going on. As I've shared before, when I get mad, like insane rage mad, I tear. I don't cry. I'm not like sobbing, but my eyes get hot and tears just stream down. So I'm sitting there. I got my Bible out because I thought we were going to use the Bible instead of using Satan's words. And uh, I'm gripping my Bible. My eyes are burning. Tears start running. 
and I feel my mentor's hand just come over, and it's like he was trying to say, don't punch her, she's a 70-something-year-old lady. <laughs> because I was boiling, and I lost it. I, I got up, I put my hands down, and I said, this is the church that Jesus runs. What you're saying is ridiculous. And I start walking out, and at the very end, as if it's some sort of token, I said, and I have a half-black brother. Boom! And I walked out of my very first staff meeting. You don't get many points on a staff by doing that, by the way. This is a current event. Racism, I want us to sort of get on sync with a definition. Let's just call it today. Attributing to one race intrinsic superiority or valuing above another and treating others as undesirable or evil. This is the world that we live in. Racism isn't a one-way street. There are people from other races during the, the time, for example, of the racial, um, the, the removal of segregation, there were not only whites that were against interracial marriage, there were blacks that were against it, there were Asians that were against it, and that's still the case today. There is still stigmas in many Asian cultures that you need to marry someone of your same ethnic group today. And I'm not saying that, that it's all evil. I understand the intentions behind it at times, but what I am saying is that it's mostly evil. So let's go, start going through this. God is the eternal king, the maker of everything we see. He sustains all life from the common sparrow to the blue whale. God created human beings, all human beings, of every skin color, every nationality, every ethnicity in his image. And to, together, collectively, we bear the image of God. Together, collectively, we display God's beauty, worth, value, and goodness. In Isaiah 43, 6, it says this. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Every single person on the planet was created for God's glory, not for our own glory, not for the glory of a, a country, not for the glory of an ethnicity. Every single person was created for God's glory. Colossians 1.16 says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And as we keep pressing into this, I need you to understand that, that this, this racial thing, racial diversity, racial harmony, racial reconciliation, whatever you call it, I need us to stop just simply labeling it as a social issue. It is not a social issue. It's a gospel bloodline issue. It runs deeper than any one culture, deeper than any one governing power. In Galatians 2, 11 to 21, this story happened. Cephas, who also we know also as Peter, the guy who always was doing things a little bit gruffly and abruptly, uh, did a little racism no-no. And here's what happened. Paul, the apostle, says, I opposed Peter to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, that was the Jewish sect, he was eating with the Gentiles. So get it in your head, the picture. Peter's eating with Gentiles. Peter's eating with non-Jews, which at the time was a very um, forward-thinking move. So Peter here eating with the Gentiles, but people came up from James. Fearing the circumcision party, fearing the Jewish people and the rest of the Jews, he acted hypocritically, and he went and sat with the Jewish lunch table. We've all had that high school experience, or at least I did, right? In my high school, there were very distinct groups. You had the, the jocks, you had the skaters, you had the surfers, you had the different racial group breakdowns, you had the Christians, those were the weird ones, you had the choir people, they were even weirder than the Christians, and, and by the end of my high school, I was a Christian choir person, I was like the end of the road for me. 
but it was so clear, you knew, and I, at least I knew where everyone sat. I knew that if I went over here, this was the group that was going to be present. These were the rules that were going to be going on there. And, and it wasn't okay to cross those boundaries. It wasn't okay. I couldn't just roll in to the skater group after I had stopped skating. I couldn't do that because I owned rollerblades and they all knew it. It was a dangerous situation. This is what, in a much larger sense, Peter was doing. Peter was eating with the Gentiles, knowing that it is okay. Jesus died for both. Jesus saves both by faith. But then all of a sudden, some of the highbrow Jewish people come up, and Peter sort of sneaks his tray out, walks over, puts his tray down. He didn't want to be at that table. Now, Paul confronts this, and I love how he does it. Paul could have done one of a, a hundred things. He could have pulled him aside and said, hey, Peter, you know, that's not really cool what you're doing. You need, to, you need to remember that Jesus died for all of us. But Paul didn't do that. It said in front of everyone, this was a public busting of his sin. I don't know if he hopped up on the bench, but that's how I picture it in my head, that he st stands up as he sees Peter doing this, as he sees some of the other Jews being led astray, Paul stands up and in front of everyone says, you are doing something that is wrong. He didn't say, however, you are being racist, although he could have. He didn't say, you're showing favor to a group that God does not want, God doesn't have that barrier, stop doing that. He says something remarkable. In verse 14 of Galatians 2, he says, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to, to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? He doesn't get up and say you're being racist. He says what you just did is not in step with the gospel. Racism is not in step with the gospel because the gospel, the gospel is a church word, just means that Jesus came and lived the perfect life that we can live, died the death we deserve to die, rose again and ascended, and he's coming back down to town to rip things up and make a new kingdom in heaven and earth. That's the, the gospel center. And Jesus came to break down these barriers so every time that we act not according to the gospel, we can just point people back to, okay, how is this not connected? How is this related to Jesus breaking down barriers? We're setting them back up. And we all do it in a hundred ways almost every day. This is a bloodline issue. And if we don't know that the blood of Christ bonds us deeper than anything else, we are going to miss a lot and lose a lot in this life. There was a story of a Pakistan missionary who was speaking at a conference at the height of the civil rights um, movement. The, the laws had begun to get passed, but there was still a lot of tension, a lot of animosity. And this was a white missionary to Pakistan. And at a Q&A, somebody came up to the mic and they said, what, what, would hap what will happen if your daughter falls in love and marries a Pakistani? And without missing a beat, the missionary said, I'd rather have her marry a Christian Pakistani than a rich, white, banker, non-Christian that's born in America, without missing a beat. And for a lot of people in that moment, the lights went on. Because that right there went straight to the heart of the issue. In your mind is the bloodline in Christ for you deeper than, deeper than any other bloodline that exists. Now, for me and my brothers, we're, we're half-brothers. And we don't see ourselves that way. We have the same mom. Mom raised us. And, and I literally just call him my brother. I had a picture up there, but I had taken it down. Because we have a, one picture where we put ourselves in the brother order because I'm the oldest, strongest, and best looking. <laughs> so we had one picture. We were doing family pictures a few years back when my little brother was still smaller. And I have my middle brother in a headlock. That's, that's the, he's black. 
He's strong. He's an army ranger. His arms right now are like the size of my thighs. He could literally kill me with a lip probably because he's just so angry all the time. Jumps out of planes, kills people. But that's when he was smaller. I still had a psychological edge. So I had him in a headlock, and then he had my littlest brother in the headlock. We, we knew how it went. And between us, though, there's, there's nothing uh, other than Jesus that's thicker than that. Because of our lives, because of where we grew up, because of the way my mother raised us, and me being the oldest one, my mom would tell me, God made you big to protect people, so you protect people. And nobody, I promise you, nobody in this world could mess with my brother without catching my sinful side. Like if, you, if the easiest way to get me angry other than messing with my, my wife and kids is to go after my brother. I don't care that he's an army ranger and could literally kill as many people as he wanted to. If he's getting attacked by somebody, if he's getting verbally abused by somebody, I'm going to be the first one to step in front and start to throw down. Likewise, when he messes up, I want to beat him too. Because he's still in his 20s, he's a foolish, making lots of crazy uh, decisions. But, but that bloodline, that's nothing compared to the depth that we should have for, for each other in Christ. There has to be this overriding, underriding, founding, firming bloodline where we begin to see each other as actual family, that we would do anything for one another no matter what time of day it was, no matter what time of night it was, that we wouldn't, that we wouldn't see a message from somebody and just because it's two in the morning think, I'll get to them in the morning. That we would be able to open our door when somebody needs food because somebody needs food. That when we hear of a single mother who's struggling to make ends meet, we would make the ends meet and it wouldn't even phase us. We wouldn't even expect return because that's what family does. And this is the bloodline of Christ. I love uh, Revelation 5, 9 to 10 says this, you, Jesus, were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. The blood of Jesus ransomed people from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. Man, I love that so much. I think we forget that. I think the church has some blind spots. I think sometimes when we say, can't all the races just integrate, we usually mean, can't they all be more white? And we're going to get to that in a minute. But I think Jesus values and he died for every nation, tongue, tribe, every ethnic group, and he brings us together to be one, to be a kingdom. The truth about all this race stuff is that God sees race, and he doesn't see through the lines. He doesn't see no skin color. God sees every skin color. God sees every ethnic background, and he says, I love these people. I died for all of these people, and there is not one that's above another. But how do we live? Because this issue... It is, it is hard to talk about in public. And, and if you don't know that, um, you may not have been paying attention. I, can't, I can barely talk about it, even with my racial makeup, because I look mostly white. And, uh, and this has been problematic, because right now we have a white-appearing pastor preaching to a predominantly white, and not by much. Like, we've got a fair amount of black people from different descents. We've got, some, uh, we've got some Latino, Hispanic. We don't have very many Asians. I wish that the Asian population would represent a little better. Um, I'm a little sore about that. My people need to step up your game and lead your relatives to Jesus. Okay. But I want to talk about some barriers that come up and why I think racism is still going on today. 
So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say a bunch of them. We're going to talk about a few, whichever one God puts to my brain to highlight because I've got too many words to say for just one sermon. So here's some barriers. Here are things that are working to promote racism in the world. Satan, the person, Lucifer, that fallen angel, um, he is an evil, murderous liar, and that's all he is about. He's trying to promote this because when people are focused on sin issues, they're less focused on pressing in toward Jesus at times. Guilt is, an, is a, a barrier because people feel guilty. There's the, there's the white guilt, there's black guilt, there's Asian guilt, there's all kinds of guilt that goes around. Pride, people thinking they're better than another race. God came to destroy pride. Hopelessness, feelings of inferiority or self-doubt, feelings of superiority or dominance. Some people just have apathy, and there are many more. These are so many barriers to finally bringing this gospel that Jesus died to tear down boundaries into real life. So let's talk about a few. Satan. He's a liar, a murderer, he's powerful, he's strong, he's a punk. I hate him, can't stand him. Some people in some churches think that they can like, take on Satan. They think that, that they can just walk up and they can command Satan around and boss him around because they've been saved. Now, I don't know about you, but I read the Bible and, and I don't really see a lot of that happening in the Bible. There's only two people that mouth off to Satan in the Bible. One of them is Jesus and he can do whatever he wants. The other one is the archangel Michael. So if you're thinking in very shallow terms, Satan was the pretty boy, Lucifer, and the archangel Michael was the thug of God's army. Satan fell away, Michael still beats down. Now Michael, we, we have a few cool stories that are just in little verses. There's one story where Gabriel was going to answer Daniel's prayer in the book of Daniel, and he got stopped by a demon called the prince of the heir of Persia. And it says that Gabriel couldn't get through until Michael showed up. Now I don't know how this whole angel hierarchy works, but I'm really pumped to meet this guy because Gabriel was stuck. And Gabriel's like the little messenger boy. He's the postman. He's got the hat, the high socks that are all blue. And he was just going to deliver the message. And there was a demon more powerful than him until Michael came. And it's like it, the passage is so short. It's like Michael just shows up and says, Gabriel, move along. And in my head, I picture it like, he's going to go now. And, and, and Michael was the only other one. When Satan was trying to steal Moses' body in the book of Jude, it, ca it captures this. Satan was going to steal Moses' body to get the people to worship it. And it's like Michael grabs the body, and he doesn't even want to fight. And Satan is like, give me, give me the body back. And Michael just says, the Lord rebuke you. I don't even got to deal with it. That's a bad dude. Like, you know, that, you know that you're fighting a bad dude when the dude turns away and doesn't even look at you. He's got so much confidence. You know, I'm not, if I go down to Ebor and somebody mouths off to me, I don't walk away like this. I walk away like this. Maybe get your pepper spray out. We're going to take this fool down. I know. Keep your eye on the target. Keep your eye on the prize. Rocky Balboa taught me that. Now, now those are the only two guys that mouth off to Satan. And, and a lot of Christians do. I just need to tell you, he is... He has lived for thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years. He is smarter than you. Trying to fight Satan is like you trying to get in a snowball fight with him as he's sitting in hell. Your snowball won't make it halfway. There, there is a way, however, that we can press in against that enemy. Realizing that he's a lying, murderous thief. He comes to steal, joy, and to kill. I don't think it's, I don't think it's an accident that this whole race thing is tied to a hundred other issues. I don't think it's an accident that, that it's projected over 40% of abortions uh, are had by black female women. That's not an accident. Satan is not a fool. He knows what he's doing, and he's trying to destroy and divide as much as he can. 
Now, Sanctity of Life is next week because we just had the anniversary of the Roe v. Wade, so we're going to talk about Sanctity of Life and a, a few different issues there. But today, we, we've got to come to this and say, where is Satan bringing that division, and how do, we, how do we push back? So here's how we can push back. I love that we're Bible people, and more and more people are reading the Bible. A bunch of people have gotten Bible reading plans. So I, I want to see if you guys can finish any of these. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. I love it. I, there's always at least one Baptist person that had that as a memory verse. <laughs> By the way, sidebar, I've been getting in trouble lately. The conservative people are mad at me for saying Jesus wasn't a Republican. The people that people get mad at me when I say that the, there's a sexual ethic in the Bible that God wants us to pursue for holiness. So I, I get called too conservative. I get called too liberal. Um, I just want you to know that I'm a Christian. And wherever that lands me, I will swim in that hot water all day long because I love it. End side note. Okay. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. So we're not going to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus is going to destroy the works of the devil. Since, since therefore, Hebrews 2.14, the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, Jesus, that through death, Jesus might destroy the one who has the power of death, the devil. Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing uh, over them in him. Jesus is the only person who could defeat the devil, and it is through him and in him that we can even approach that conversation. We can't begin to get to the systemic roots of racism until we put Jesus at the center. And that's whether or not you're a Christian. I do not believe that racism will be ended by, by happy talking, by trying not to see skin color, by reposting memes. It will not be ended that way. Comedians have tried it and failed for years. One of the things that you do when you're preparing for a, a sermon on racism is you watch a lot of Chris Rock. You watch a lot of Martin Lawrence because you type in racism and a ton of material comes up. And a lot of the things they're saying get at the, the surface of it, but they're not getting to the root. That there is someone actively working against unity and he can only and has only been defeated by Jesus. Another reason that people, um, that this, this is so hard to overcome is pride. God hates pride. Everyone say, God hates pride. Okay, we all just said that out loud, unless you didn't, then you're free from this next condemnation. But we are all so proud. I am so proud. In America, pride is a virtue. In the Bible, pride is not a virtue. In, in the Bible, God is continually saying, I'm opposed to the proud person. God opposes the proud. God is against the proud. The proud person is the one who says, I can do it on my own. I can be what I need to be on my own. It's by my own strength. God hates pride. Isaiah 2.11 says, The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. James 4.6 says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Pride wears a lot of masks. Pride can look strong. Pride can look weak. It always looks at the self, however, before looking to God and others. Race is a topic filled with pride. It is rife with pride. White supremacy, mothers who won't let their daughters date boys from mixed-race families, groups who actively still today are saying that white people deserve more than people of other skin colors and racial backgrounds. There's also pride on the other side. There's the black power movement. There's things like this week, as current as Jada Pinkett Smith talking about the Oscars and how there are only white people nominated for the main roles, the 20 main actor-type roles. It's only white people for the second year in a row. That thing's been flying around on my Facebook. 
What I want every side to understand is that the moment we have pride, we're not just going against another race or another group. We're not just fighting against some social issue. The moment our life is postured in pride and thinking we are better than someone else and boasting above someone else and, and having a, a false humility to project this, this sense that we are humble even though we're being prideful internally, the moment we do any of that, we're turning and the enemy is no longer just the issue or the person or the group. We are facing God himself and we're pushing him away. That's what pride does. But enter Jesus. He came to dismantle pride. This verse is a verse that everyone in the chapel should have memorized by the end of this year because I will not stop saying it. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this faith is not your own doing. It is the gift of God so that no one may boast. This whole process of salvation that we relentlessly come after, that Jesus died for sinners like you and me, that he died to wipe the record clean, that there is no condemnation in Christ, that when Jesus said, it is finished, he meant it is finished. He did this by faith, by grace, through faith, so that no one could boast. It becomes ironic then when Christians become full of boasting. It becomes ironic then when Christians can become some of the most proud people that have ever uh, lived in this country, thinking that we are the right way, that our political view is the right view, despite the fact despite the fact that Christianity is not what we generally see it as. Because here's the truth of life in the church. Races pocket up to churches that fit their racial background. This is why we have white churches and black churches and Hispanic churches and Asian churches. I understand that some of this is for, for language, but not all of it is for language. Some of it happens because we simply want our style we simply believe our way is the best way. You know, if you go to a, um, a, a white church like ours, a predominantly white church, you know, as they would call it, because I'm white, and it's the, the leader reflects it, we need to hire some people of different backgrounds. You can expect at a church like this that the people are mostly docile, you're calm, you come in, you, you, you during worship, no matter how excited Jared gets, the majority of us will mostly do this, maybe this, sometimes this. And this guy, I mean, Jared, he's always plugged into monsters. I feel like his energy drink tank is always full. He doesn't even drink energy drinks. That twirly thing he does with the car, that gets me excited. But I'm dancing so much, I stand behind you so I don't distract anybody because my interpretive dance is weird because I'm so tall. <laughs> if you go to a church like this, service is expected to go between an hour and 15 to an hour and a half. And an hour and a half, people are like, gee, this guy needs to stop talking. You go to a black church, brother. I mean, I just want to swap staffs for a day and just terrify the snot out of most of you, and then I'll go bore the church down the road. Because when they sing, they don't stop until they're sweating, even if it's 67 degrees. When their preacher preaches, if he preaches for just an hour, they've been shortchanged. You think I'm joking, I'm not. The services in many black churches go for two and a half, three and a half hours. They've got food breaks, and you just go out at your own leisure. Like, I need a recharge because Jesus is pumping me up so much. Oh, I'm going back in for more. You go to the Asian church, they are the biggest nerds you could imagine, my people. They will camp out on one word for an hour and a half because they're Presbyterians. And then when they pray, there's like no inflection in their tone. Just going, going, gone. 
course, I'm being stereotypical and reverse racist and all of those things. We have to get Jesus at the center of this issue where pride is destroyed, where guilt is paid for because all of our sin is paid for on the cross. And we need to begin to do something. And I'm going to leave you with this. And this is, this is a can of worms. I should explain this more, but we don't have time. And this is, a, and I look mostly white despite being Asian and white. But here's what happens. If we don't begin to get past the broken system and see past our individualistic culture, we're never going to deal with this issue appropriately. We live in a culture where individualism is supreme. What's good for me is good for me. What's good for you is good for you. And what we don't understand is that in the Bible, that is not, and throughout history actually, that is not the predominant way that things have happened. When Achan sinned in Joshua chapter 7, God said, you're going to take this place over. Don't take anything. It's all plunder that we're not going to take. Achan stole some for himself. When it was found out that he stole, his whole family was killed for that sin. And some of us in our Western modern disposition think, how can that be right? They didn't steal. They were his family. But they understood something that we often do not, that a family is responsible, that a family contributed to the way a person was brought up. And, and if you don't get this, it's because you're mostly white and you live in this culture. The Hispanics and the, Asian in, in, and the Asians in this room know exactly what I'm talking about. Because if I did something, my family took a rap for it. If anyone in my Filipino side of the family did something bad, the whole family bore the judgment for it. And this is what the Bible teaches. In Daniel 9, it takes it to the next level. Not just from the family unit, but Daniel, the guy who was in the lion's den, that cool kid story, he repents of sin that he didn't even do. He repents of the sin of his ancestors. He said, my ancestors did this. God, I am sorry for that. And I think it's high time, and I know that this will rub people the wrong way. But we have to repent of the sins of our ancestry, whatever that was. We have to say, God, I am sorry that the people line that I came from promoted slavery. I am sorry that this is where my lineage came from. God, that is sinful. Show me any of that lineage that has come down to me, whether I see it or not. And it wasn't until I was walking with my mom and my, my stepdad, my black stepdad, Vaughn, it wasn't until that moment in the late 80s that I realized something was still off. Because it was then that I would see the looks, I'd hear the whispers, and I wondered, what are they talking about? I couldn't fathom the difference that it is to have a shade of skin color that's not the majority in a culture. And the whispers and the way you're treated differently. And then I, I went to India where I was the minority in every sense of the word. In India, everyone is dark-skinned. They speak a different language than me. They're this tall. I literally stuck out like a sore thumb. And I couldn't speak their language. I felt like a first grader because everyone was speaking down to me because now I was in their neighborhood. And I was trying to, like, say English slower as if that would make them understand. Like, how, how arrogant is that? If I just say English slower, a language which you know nothing about, and even though I'm in your country, maybe then you'll understand. And they're speaking a mile a minute to me, and I'm like, no hablo espanol still. It's not even Spanish. <laughs> but, but to get that sense, that brief glimpse, that here I don't think about at all. Because here I went to school in Orange County, and I was just another beach bum kid. And I, I don't think about the neighborhoods I live in because 
I generally will live in neighborhoods where there's people that are kind of more like me. I don't think about the fact that, like my brother does at times, because of his skin color, he gets followed in grocery stores or in retail stores more than I do. And I don't live with that pressure. If you're, if you're a non, if you're any white race, you don't understand that pressure. We don't understand what comes with being white. And some of you are thinking, well, man, you know, I've seen that meme. The only race that you're allowed to be racist to now is white people. And I say, well, you know, <laughs> as the comedian says, oh, man, this comedian I watched, don't watch him. It's so vulgar and ungodly. <laughs> he says, I think there is such a thing as reverse racism. I could be a reverse racist if I wanted to. All I would need is a time machine. And what I would do is get in my time machine. I'd go back in time to before Europe colonized the world, right? And I'd convince the leaders of Africa, Asia, and the Middle East, Central and South America to uh, invade and colonize Europe. And then I would occupy them, steal their land resources, set up some kind of, um, I don't know, like a trans-Asian slave trade where we would export white people to work on giant rice plantations in China just ruin Europe over the course of a couple of centuries so all their descendants would want to migrate out and live in places where black and brown people come from. But over the course of that time, I'd make sure to set up systems that privilege black and brown people at every conceivable social, political, and economic opportunity. And white people would never have any hope of real self-determination. Just every couple of decades, make up some fake war as an excuse to go and bomb them back into the Stone Age or say it's for their own good because their culture is inferior. Then just for kicks, subject white people to colored standards of beauty, so they end up hating their own color and skin and eyes and hair. Whoa. Now, I know, I know comment cards come and emails come, and I, I need you to understand that we are part of a system that's broken. And I'm going to do something that's, that's quite radical in closing. We need to begin to see the blind spots and ask God, God, where might I be racist and not even know it? So I'm going to compare it to the Holocaust. And you say, well, that's pretty steep because six million Jews died in the Holocaust. Well, millions of uh, African Americans were killed in slavery. Millions of people were killed uh, when the Japanese took over uh, a lot of the, the Chinese, the Philippines. They killed millions of people there. The Soviet has, under their, the Soviet goulashes, they killed millions of people that surrounded the Soviet Union as they were taking over. This is an issue where systems get broken. So here's the types that there are. There's the type of people who know what's going on. They support it. They, they see this is a broken system, whether it's the education, the politics, economics, whatever it is, and they, they do it. They implement it. They want the system to be broken. There's the people who are in a system. They know what's going on, and they just kind of follow the orders. They didn't create it. They're not the masterminds, but they're there. They just do it. There's the people then who are there. They're vaguely aware of what's going on, but they, they kind of want to push it away and pretend it doesn't exist. And then there's the people who don't know what's happening, and they've only heard rumors, and they, they don't even care to examine it. All, it takes all of those types of people to create a, a system of evil. So as we look at this issue and figure out how to tangibly get Jesus at the center of it, we need to see where we are. At the Holocaust, the first people would be the people who set up the death camps. And, and if you've never done so yet, um, take a trip to Germany and go to one of the death camps. I went to Dachau. I don't know if that's how you say it, but you have the bunk beds, three, three bunks high, and it's where they experimented on the Jews to figure out how to kill them in the other death camps. This was the experimental camp. And, and there's nothing, there's nothing that I've experienced in my life that's as eerie as walking through those buildings. That's as eerie as walking into the oven areas where they killed people. There's nothing 
as eerie as walking into the rooms where they would submerge human beings in ice to see how long it took somebody to die in freezing cold waters. And there were people who promoted that. Then there were the guards who, who were there and they, they weren't against it because they were working it. They didn't mastermind it, but they were there. Then there were the people in the towns, the civic leaders, and they knew, they knew what was going on, but, but they didn't want to try to fight against it. And there's so many testimonies of a lot of these people that, that weren't involved in the death camps in Germany that once the truth came out, they committed suicide because they were so sick that they did nothing about it. And then there's the people who, who don't know what's happening. They don't even care to learn about it. They just put it on the back burner. It takes all, all four of those types of people to keep an evil system going. There are levels of responsibility that we all have to take. And I know that this sermon is not probably what you came expecting to hear, but I need us all, white, black, Asian, Hispanic, wherever you come from in this world, whatever your heritage is, to open our eyes and say, is there any point in place in my life where the bloodline of my ethnic race is deeper and stronger than the bloodline of Jesus? Is there any point where I'm letting Satan, the liar, thieving murderer, influence me in regards to race and how I get along with other people more so than Jesus who came to destroy the works of that lying, thieving murderer? Is there any place where I'm letting guilt assuage me or where I'm using guilt to exploit something? Find out where you are in that system. Repent of that. Put Jesus in the center of that. And as we see these injustices, turn to God and say, God, you came to destroy these works. Please destroy them. Turn to this book and say, God, I need to see this bloodline in Jesus as the strongest bloodline in my life. Because until we get there, there's going to be little kids who have interracial married parents that get weird looks. Until we get to Jesus' bloodline being the thickest thing ever, there's going to be moms of daughters who tell their daughters to break up with their boyfriends. Until we get there, there's going to be people unfairly treated around the world and demonized wrongly. The last time that uh, I was telling you guys about the image of God, I remember how quiet it got when I said, all people are made in the image of God. I had you guys repeat it. And then I said, all teenagers made in the image of God. And when I got to politicians, remember it got really quiet when I said, all politicians are, and I said, made in the image of God. And like four of you said, made in the image of God. And then I said, all ISIS terrorists are, and nobody wanted to spit that out. But that's the truth of it, that we're all made in the image of God and that Jesus is pursuing people to give them the same gift he's given many of you, that gift of one-way love. And you're free to disagree with me. I would love for this to be a conversation starter, not just a proclamation of what I believe the Bible teaches, but an opportunity for you to dialogue with me and each other to say, okay, here's where I think I've gone wrong in this issue of bloodline in Jesus. Here's where I need to be brought to correction, or here's where I need to repent and apologize. Let's make us that type of people because we have a very diverse community here. My, uh, I, I see more races mixed here than I did in L.A. In L.A., they're all pocketed up. You, you know where the black neighborhoods were. You know where the Asian neighborhoods were of different varieties, the Koreans, the Chinese. You know where the Hispanic neighborhoods were. But we have a beautiful opportunity to be a light in a dark place and take a stand in an issue that people only yell and scream about and don't bring actual solutions for. Let's pray. God, I can't uh, fathom what my life would be like um, if I were born any different race than what I am. God, I need you to open my eyes, to open our eyes, to see where injustice lies. 
to see where we have let Satan or guilt or pride or apathy creep in. This issue will not go away with platitudes and political hoorahs and rallies. God, Jesus alone defeats and breaks and destroys the works of the devil, and this is surely one of them. Jesus, you pray that your followers would have unity. Give us that unity in Jesus' name. God, we love you. It's all for your glory. Amen.